Today's reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 38. Please read with me. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him quickly spread over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. The word of our Lord. Thank you, Dan. All right. Get my giant iPad here. It's supposed to be. So we're continuing this study in Mark, and you know we're reading in this text that Dan read. Um, there's all these little stories that kind of reveal to us something about who Jesus is and the kind of power that he has. And that, you know, we're going to talk a lot about what that power kind of looks like and how Jesus wields it. Because we all, like we all deal with power, right? We need power to fulfill our basic needs. Um, most great stories are about people who use power for either really wonderful things or use power for really horrible things. Like power is, is one thing, but how it's wielded is, is just as important. And in our own culture, if today you were to ask someone, give me a quality of someone today who's really powerful probably in one of your top three or four people you list is going to be somebody who's really wealthy, right? There's some connection we make oftentimes with what real power looks like and wealth even. And if you look at the most wealthy people in all of history, you know, you could look at uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, who had like a net worth of 337 billion or you could look at Rockefeller's like 367. King Solomon in the Older Testament, they estimate that his net worth was 2.2 trillion. Um, but the biggest one, do you know who the most wealthy person in all of recorded history is? It's Genghis Khan. They're estimating that he, he was worth hundreds of trillions of dollars. And what he would do is he would conquer and he would pillage, and then he would take his, his uh, spoils of war and then give it to his people. And so he would like redistribute those resources. Why? 
to redistribute the power. Like, you know, when we think about power, what do we think about? How important is power and how is it wielded? Well, in this story, as you're, you know, you're hearing about this idea of power, there are lots of examples of how Jesus uses his power, this ultimate power, and how he wields it for something uh, to sort of make his kingdom come alive. Jesus uses his power to push back the spiritual realm, which we'll talk about. There's a veil lifted on that that we don't often get to see in the scriptures. He pushes back with his power, the, the power of physical illness. He pushes back against rejection. He pushes back all of these things to make his kingdom more clear. This is why I have come, to proclaim this message, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and the Son of God, the Savior, the Promised One, and the One who speaks with authority, as we see here in the Scriptures. Now, when you think about the power of who Jesus, what kind of power Jesus has, the power of who He is, one place you can go is creeds. You know, creeds, confessions, they are written by you know, men to sort of sum up what we believe. They're not the Scriptures, they're not as authoritative, but they're good summaries of what the Scriptures say. The Shorter Catechism talks about, the Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about Jesus being a prophet, priest, and a king. That that's how he executes his office, that that's how he operates. Prophet, he's the one who speaks to his people on behalf of God, the mouth of God. He's a priest, he speaks to God on behalf of his people. But he's also a king, he's the ruler. Um, the Apostles' Creed says he sits at the right hand of God. The Nicene Creed says that as well. Um, but the scriptures articulate where they're getting all of this, this, uh, these beliefs about who Jesus is. Like in Ephesians chapter 1, we're reminded that Jesus is at the right hand of God, that he's the authority above all other authorities, that he rules above all powers, that his name is above every name that has ever been said or ever will be said. Revelations chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 talk about how Jesus is the ruler of kings. So Jesus has power. How does he wield it? How does he use that power? If you believe God exists, it's not hard to believe that he's all powerful. But the question of how does God wield his power, that's a whole nother question that helps us understand who God is and what kind of power he has and are we a recipient of that power? Now, I'm going to suggest this to you. We're going to look at how Jesus' power works here. But the big theme of what we're talking about is how the power of Jesus' kingdom is aimed at the heart. That Jesus' kingdom, what he's doing here, his power, he is laser focusing it on the heart as a starting point. Um, and then he, we see how he defeats all of these other challengers who bring up power. And then ultimately, we see where Jesus' power is centered. Okay? So, to start with, the power of Jesus, how it aims at our hearts. What does Jesus do in the beginning of this text? He goes into the synagogue. This is a place where people would have gathered to learn from the scriptures, from people who were learned, from the Pharisees, from the teachers of the law. They gather there in the synagogue, and Jesus goes in on the Sabbath day. Sabbath would have been a Saturday, um, and they, it would have been a day of rest, you know, based on the order of creation. God creates everything, and then he rests. And so his people imitate that. You know, we do that. We imitate that creational pattern and importance to rest but they're there in the synagogue it's on the sabbath and what we see is jesus come in with his power to enable rest in a very unrestful place there's lots going on here the people are uh, the people are learning from the teachers and jesus shows up and they have a response to it that doesn't say wow this is an interesting commentary 
Uh, they don't say, you know, this is sort of what like Pharisee, you know, whoever said. No, they hear what Jesus is saying and it is utterly different. It's completely different than what they've been hearing. It's a teaching that aims at the heart. In verse 21, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. So the teachers of the law would have been like the Pastor Brads and Pastor Kyles, right? What, what Jesus is coming in and doing is he is teaching something that is completely different and the people are saying he is teaching with authority. Now what that means is, is that he's teaching as if he's the author. He is teaching with a source material of the original stuff. He's speaking with authority and it's completely different than all of our trusted teachers have been teaching us. And the response is, they're amazed. Verse 27, the people were all amazed, so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. What was different about Jesus' teaching? It was different than what they'd heard before. That's clear. No one even argues that. It was different than what they had been getting. It was different than the teachers of the law. What was it? Well, I'm going to suggest this to you and I'll explain it as we go here. But one verse that every Hebrew follower of God would have spent a lot of time thinking about is something called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The word here, Shema. They would have thought this was a primary uh, verse for them to think about. Let me read it to you and see if you can hear something you've heard before from Jesus. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Just a side note, do you want to know what God's plan for parenting and discipling our kids is? It's right here. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, live the truth of who God is amongst your children. That's God's plans for discipleship for our kids. So that they would what? Hear God's calling for a fully engaged relationship with the Father of heaven and earth. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your strength. I want you to have a fully engaged relationship with the Father of heaven and earth. That's God's vision for you and your relationship with him. He wants a fully engaged relationship. If you feel like it's not there, don't be discouraged. Just know God has more for you. Hearing his word, approaching him, this is where God's leading you, to have the kind of relationship where you love him with all of your being, with all of your power. This is a teaching that's meant to pierce our hearts. This is not a teaching about how to be better or how to engage in culture differently or how to um, set up 10 new rules to make sure that you can secure God's favor. That's what we do with rules. We follow them to sort of obligate God at times to either love us or disown us. God's saying, can you abandon that? Here's what I'm interested in. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, when he's asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's the first order of business. To 
to have a fully engaged relationship with God. What flows from that is Jesus' answer about the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And here it is. All the law and the prophets are summed up with these two things. Those are Jesus' words. So what do you think he's teaching in the temple, in the synagogue? He's talking about these things. And it is completely different than anything they've heard before. It's amazing. Jesus is teaching with authority. They probably knew that they knew the Shema, but they weren't emphasizing it as the main thing. And Jesus is doing that, and it is amazing the people. Christ is, Christ is teaching that his desires are to aim at our hearts. If you're wanting to know how to grow in your relationship with God, I need you to start there, because that's where Jesus starts. To recognize that God's calling you into a fully engaged relationship with his son. The one who has power, which we're going to talk about. Ultimate power. Ruler of kings. Lord of lords. Maker of the cosmos. He wants this for you, to have a fully engaged relationship with his father. His teaching is aimed at relationship. Now, my wife was telling me about this survey, about relationships. And um, the question, this was the question. If you had to choose between your pet and your phone, and you had to give up one for a week... Which one would you give up? Over 50% of the people responded, I would give up my pet. The same question was asked, but it had a little nuance to it that went like this. If you had to give something up for a month, would you give up your phone or your spouse? And the number was still pretty high. It was pretty rough. (laughs) Relationships, you know, phones are great, but like we need actual relationships with people. That's, that's what God's made us for with himself. It's what he's made, it, made us for with one another. God is interested in us engaging in a full relationship with him. Jesus is teaching this, and it is amazing, people, and it is rousing the forces of evil. Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with himself, and he is bringing that message out, and it stirs up everything. It is a new kind of teaching. You know, it's, it, think about this. God today wants you to wrestle with this. Do you really believe he's in desiring for you to have an engaged relationship with you where he can encourage you and build you up and strengthen you and be gracious to you and sustain you and give, a, give you a hope that's unshakable? He does not want you to leave this place without that kind of hope. And Jesus is inviting us into that, and the people are amazed. But no sooner does Jesus begin proclaiming this message than challengers arise from every angle. And if there's anything we can probably all identify with, it's the reality of challenges in our life. You know, take the last six months, but just abandon that. Take your whole life. Like everybody deals with challenges and difficult circumstances and tough situations, things that get in the way of what we're trying to do or or things that are really overwhelming to us. We all experience challenges. And I'm not really a huge Survivor fan. You know that TV show? There's like, I don't know, 75 seasons. I don't know how many seasons there are now. But I looked up, I was interested, like, what's the longest lasting challenge in Survivor? There was this challenge that took place in Guatemala where they had to suspend a log over the water and everybody had to stand on the log and it's real simple. Whoever can stand on the log longest wins and you get to advance or you get one of their little tokens or I don't know, you know, little bells, something. If you win, you know, just stay on the log and you win. So, you know, people started falling off at two hours and six hours and 12 hours and 18 hours and 19 hours. And this one dude was stood on this log for 23 hours and 58 minutes or something like that, like almost a full day. That's incredible, right? It's one day. 
Like it's one day in all the days of the year. It's one days in all the days of the millennia. It's one challenge in one moment. And it's amazing to us. Jesus comes to us with a kind of power that faces all challengers. Let me talk about a few of them. One challenge, the challenge of tradition and assumptions. The challenge of tradition and assumptions. Jesus is walking into the synagogue, and as you read the Gospel of Mark, he does this in lots of places, but he is taking what they think to be fundamental to what it means to know God, and he's going, oops, wrong. It starts here. It starts with relationship. It doesn't start with all these assumptions you have about these rules to follow and these things to do. Those are, maybe some of those flow, maybe some of those flow from a right relationship with me, but you're making up your own. The scriptures tell us that by following rules and proving our righteousness to God, it has an appearance of wisdom. It kind of seems right. Well, look how disciplined they are. But it's actually foolishness if the goal is to establish your relationship with God. God is calling us into something better, something more magnificent. It's a significant challenge to what they thought they knew to be true. They assumed they understood. In verse 39, Jesus goes throughout Galilee and teaches these things, and it rouses the forces of evil against these traditions, and these things they thought they understood. And the impact is tremendous. You know, I, I went to the University of Texas, and I had a Greek professor, and I remember Dr. Martinez telling us um, that when he was in school, he had to uh, live in, the, he, to get a free year of school, he lived in this Jewish house. And his only job there was to do work on Saturday for them, to do work on the Sabbath. And so well, he would tell me these things he'd had to do. But one of the things he had to do was just stand in the elevator the whole day and just push the button because it broke the rules to push the button on Saturday. And so he had to do that. And I don't say that to make fun of anybody. I say that to say it is foolish to think that that's going to impact your relationship with God. But we have other things that we raise up to be sort of the standard by which we measure if God's going to love us or not, whether it's our own shame or our own failures, our own obedience, or we use those things to judge other people and say, well, look at them and this, and therefore I'm not impressed and I don't have to love them. Now, Jesus is calling us to something different. He's challenging our assumptions. He's challenging our traditions, and his impact is transformative. What Jesus is saying is not just slightly different. It's not just a new opinion. It comes with the authority of God. Now, there's a lot of beautiful things about our traditions as Presbyterians. But any of them that we discover that are not in sync with the author of creation, I'm good with abandoning. Because God calls us to seek his kingdom and to seek after him. Don't worry. I don't have anything in mind. I'm just saying, hypothetically, if there was something. So one challenger, traditions and assumptions. Another challenger, the dark forces of evil. Now, this is super interesting for us, especially in a Western context where we don't think about, you know, the spiritual realm very much. The Bible lifts up the veil for us to see into the reality of a terrifying realm that if you could actually see on a regular basis, I don't know if any of us could handle it. We see in Mark, um, Jesus encounter things that might even make us tremble. Now, at seminary, Kyle and I had a professor named Dr. Williams, and I remember a student asking him one time, why don't we talk more about angels and demons? Like, why don't we spend more time there? And his answer I thought was perfect. He says, we want to talk about it as much as the Bible does. That's how, we, that's how much we want to emphasize it. Well, today, it gets talked about a little bit, so we're going to talk about it. Consider these verses. Verse 23, Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Interesting. 
The Pharisees can't identify Jesus. The demons know precisely who he is. You're the Holy One of God. Verse 32 and following. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. They have to obey him. They don't get the freedom to not do what he says. It's interesting because actually the leprous man we read about in the end of this chapter, Jesus says, don't go talk about this yet, and he does just that. Right? The demons can't even choose to not obey if God commands them. And there's some relationship God has with us where he gives us this this balance between free will and following him that we see even in this text with the leprous man. Verse 39, Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. Verse 39, so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Like over and over again in this story, Jesus' message of loving God and loving one another that he's heralding as the author of is rousing up a, a, a realm we barely understand. What do we learn from this? Two big things, I think. One is, is that evil's real. Demons are real. Um, dark forces are real. That's all real. But here's the other thing we learn. That if you're with Jesus, they have absolutely no power. They are 100% submissive to his word and his direction. It's another benefit of following Jesus and being part of his kingdom. That even there in the spiritual realm, the king of heaven and earth has absolute authority. He has power even over the challenge of the evil spiritual realm. Another challenger, broken realities in our world. In this text, there are several that come out. One is a misunderstanding of who God is. The teachers of the law are looking at Jesus in the face and they can't identify God. They can't see him. They're interested in the minutia of the law above all else, so much so that it's all they see and care about. And Jesus has a teaching that completely amazes them and undoes how they think about what it means to know God and to know others. If you want to know God, Jesus is saying, believe me, follow me, watch this. So, misunderstandings about who God is. That's one of the broken realities. Another, the breaking down of our physical bodies. Verse 29, Simon's mother-in-law is sick with fever. Jesus takes her hand and the fever leaves her. Verse 32, people bring to Jesus those who are sick with lots of diseases and he heals them. Verses 40 to 45, the leprous man comes to Jesus. Jesus heals him. What are we supposed to take away from this? What we're supposed to take away from it is that when Jesus' power is fully realized, Sickness, illness, maladies wither. This is a foretaste. This is a vision of your future. If you trust in Christ, what that baptism symbolized with Peter, that we're united to Jesus, this is your future. And the revelation that Jesus is doing here with these miracles, it is not a magic show to impress everyone, so we'll follow him in that moment. He's saying, I'm going to give you a peek. Look what happens when I am fully realized in my reign as the author and the creator of all things. I am going to make all things new. I'm going to push back darkness. I'm going to transform your hearts. And I'm even going to heal your bodies. It is a comprehensive vision of redemption that Jesus has for us. Another broken reality. The pain we inflict on one another. You know, we're all guilty of inflicting pain on one another. You know, we're all guilty of hurting one another's feelings. We're all guilty of sinning against each other. What does God do with that? Well, if you read the last part of the chapter of chapter 1 in the Gospel of Mark, 
and you read about the story with the leprous man, it is not a simple healing. The man says, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I'm willing. And then we get a, picture, we get a little peek into the heart of God. Jesus has compassion on the man. Have you thought about that? The maker of heaven and earth sees the pain you experience and his response, he has compassion on you. He, he understands the difficulty. He understands the, the frustration. He understands the tough things you're walking through. For this leprous man, Jesus felt compassion for him because he had been rejected socially. He had not, was not able to see his family. He had been rejected, rejected by the entire community spiritually. He was seen as unclean. He was a picture of rejection, uncleanness. And what does Jesus do? By the word of his power, he cleanses him and restores him. He heals him. He shows a vision of even the pain that might be inflicted on someone, either rejecting them or hurting them. He's able to heal even that, which is an encouragement to us too because it means he's going to heal us. Jesus became so popular with some of the things that he was doing that he couldn't even go into the town anymore. He's, they're not able to host him. Uh, the enemies are frustrated. He's unwelcome. And what begins to happen is people find him anyway. We read in the last part of the of, of Gospel of Mark, the very last verse, people still came to him from everywhere. What you learn about Jesus as you watch him wield his power is that he is wielding it to bring about a kingdom that includes you and you become the recipients of his power on your behalf. Whether it's physical illness or spiritual illness, whether it's dark forces or your own struggles with depression or anxiety or whatever it is, Jesus comes in with power and says, listen, I am the author and the king of creation. I'm going to sustain you. As you walk through this, I am going to be with you. My power will be yielded on your account. It's fun. If you read this, all of these different challengers try to impede the mission of God. They try to impede what Jesus is doing. None of them are successful. You getting the point? There's nothing that God will not do to reach your heart with this invitation for you to have a relationship with him. How important is that relationship? Well, you're going to face challenges. Our church is experiencing challenges right now. You know, our families are experiencing challenges right now. We have brothers and sisters in our church who are ill right now and healing. We have plenty of challenges. Here's the good news. The power of the author is here on our behalf as we trust in him by faith. What does it look like for us to start doing that? Well, let's look at, let's look at one more part of this text. Look at what Jesus does in verses 35 to 37. Jesus goes to be with his father. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, Well, let us go somewhere else, to nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. What is the center for who Jesus is? He goes off to a solitary place alone. Is he alone? He's with his father. He's communing with his father. Do you see the importance of the relationship, even in the context of the Trinity? There it's important. How much more important for us in our relationship with God? Jesus goes off. He spends time with his father. He communes with him. And that gives him hope and renewal. And it gives him the strength he's going to need for this mission. And he says, well, let, this is why I've come. Let's go. You know, if there's people in your life 
you know, that you get to spend a lot of time with. For me, it's been my kids. I've spent a lot of time with my kids. Two of them are gone now, and they come back sometimes. My one son's left. I enjoy just being in their presence now. I'm beginning to understand more why God delights in us simply desiring to be present with Him, to read His Scriptures. God has given us His Word so that we do not have to wonder how God would respond to us or what God's thinking. It's given to us in the Scriptures, the very Word of God, breathed by Him, useful for us. Jesus is spending time with His Father. He's centering on His Father. The disciples come looking for Jesus Jesus responds to them. He doesn't say, get away, I'm in the middle of this. It's like, this is the best part of my quiet time. Like, he gets up, he says, no, let's go. Like, everyone's looking, it's time, we're we're going to go and accomplish this mission. Jesus calls his disciples into following him, and what happens when Jesus' power begins to be revealed? Demons scatter, illness and maladies wither, and Jesus shows us that communion with his Father is where we're going to find life. It's where we're going to find strength. What does it look like for us to cultivate our relationship with the Father? Well, one thing is just coming to worship. Simply by showing up, you're putting yourself in a position to hear God's word by the power of his spirit to work in your heart. That's one thing. Reading the scriptures. If you don't know where to start, I'm going to suggest Mark chapter 1. We're we're preaching through it for a year. Read the gospel of Mark. Get to know Jesus, the one who calls you into a fully engaged relationship with his Father. Remembering our baptisms. The Puritans use this language of improving on our baptisms. They're not saying you can like make it better in the sense of you know, increasing it. They're saying don't forget the benefit and the promise that is yours through baptism. You are united to Christ. You belong to the Father. This is a symbol you're going to need to remember who you are in your difficult moments. You're mine. We learn to embrace this good news in the context of God's people. Our Grace Life event that Kyle was talking about, our community groups, our children's ministry, all of these things are meant to be opportunities to give you a chance to cultivate your relationship with Jesus and also in your solitude to read Scripture, to cry out to God, God, I'm so grateful for this. God, I'm struggling so much with this. God, I'm terrified of this. God, I'm I'm in such a moment of... um, great excitement because of what you're doing. Whatever it is, your Father who cherishes you wants to hear it. To also hear the words that we read in the Gospel of Mark earlier, the week before last. Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to believe? Where do I need to believe the Gospel is so big that this can change in my life? Or where do I need to believe the Gospel is so big that God's grace is sufficient for my friend who's struggling? There's power in the message of the gospel that is available to us by grace and through faith. And Jesus invites us in. And yes, it's hard. And yes, there will be challengers. C.S. Lewis said this, all this trying, all this, you know, mustering up our strength, all this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you look to God and say this, you must do it, I can't. That's a good place to be. Jesus invites us into following him because he has ultimate power. He's able to transform hearts. He's able to reveal his goodness. He's able to to crack into our places of unrest and bring his Sabbath rest to us. My prayer for us as we continue to make our way through Mark is that like this is maybe a passage you come back to when there's something that's so powerful that you're like, okay, I don't know what to do. Come back and read this. Jesus reveals how powerful he is, whether it's spiritual forces or it's personal struggles, or if it's teachings that you've had in the past, 
or if I make a mistake, like the power of the gospel, Jesus reveals here, is sufficient for us in those moments. Let me pray for us as we celebrate together the supper. Jesus, we are in awe of your great power. That you're the one who says you have power over dark spiritual forces, you have power over illness, you have power over powers and struggles in our world. You are the ruler of kings. Lord, that you are gracious to us. And so this morning, as we reflect on that power, would you encourage our faith so that we might trust in you, that we might walk after you, that we might be able to follow you as your disciples because you are the one who is powerful for us. We ask all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.